You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hi, and welcome back to Skylight Books Podcast. I'm Tyler, a bookseller at Skylight Books. Uh, We are here today with Vanessa A.B. and Lydia Kessling who will be discussing uh, Vanessa's latest book. Vanessa A.B. is a consumer protection lawyer and essayist born in Cameroon. She grew up in France, England, and the United States. Vanessa holds an undergraduate degree from the University of Nevada and a law degree from Harvard. She lives in Washington, D.C. Lydia Kessling is the author of The Golden State, a 2018 National Book Foundation 535 honoree, and a finalist for the C.U. Cabell First Novelist Award. Her second novel, Mobility, will be published by Crooked Media Records, uh, uh, Reads, excuse me, in August 2023. Her essays and nonfiction have been published in outlets, including the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker Online, and The Cut. Vanessa, if you'd like to start us with a short reading, and then we'll have some deep conversation. Thank you for having me. Having cheekily entered the guard with Poitou Charente, I waltz into the offices of the French consulate for my passport replacement appointment. While I have the attaché's undivided attention, I mentioned an oddity on my birth certificate. I had never noticed it before, but the document lists my biological mother as Florence and leaves the line for father blank. This is inaccurate, I tell him. I was adopted by parents of French citizenship, another mother and the father who loved me to the ends of the earth. But neither Suzanne nor Laurent is memorialized here. Surely this is a mistake, does he not agree? The attaché squints back and forth between his computer screen and my birth certificate while I wait patiently, a black winter coat laid across my lap. I withhold what else I know, what I have known since that developmental phase when toddlers acquire self-awareness, realizing that they are of their parents yet another person altogether, and that these recurring syllables form their own name a means for the world to relate to them, but also a point of reference in which to anchor their identity. My parents had wanted to be candid from the beginning. My real first name was not Vanessa, as everyone called me, and my real last name was not Jukwa, the last name they had shared since marrying one year and one day before my birth. It was not Jukwa, even though it appeared on my school files and on the booklet in which my pediatrician recorded my progress, nor was I the biological result of their union. My name was Elizabeth Vanessa Asaibini, and I was adopted. Synchronizing our last names was never high on their list of priorities. My parents insisted that nothing could listen our family, not the, not the set of letters forming my legal name, not my face and not my skin, far darker than my daddy's. Names to them did not make family any more than blood or genes. I was their daughter from the moment they left Cameroon for France with me in tow that summer of 89. They hadn't built me from scratch, but had chosen me as their child. I loved them and they loved me more. I was thought that family was this, but also something else. Family was what we created in intentionally being together. Outsiders only had so much power to define us. The proof was in the way we bled into each other. I was Ushikwa in my grimaces, in my expressions, in my tics. My parents' slyness was baked deep into my own wry sense of humor. 
I was the worst of them, short-fused, hypersensitive, secretive, and the best of them, proud, loyal, resourceful. Often, the line between my genetic predispositions and their imprint on me seemed blurred. Was this not more the essence of family than a name? Still, I felt torn. Though we were one family, happy under the roof of our little rent control department in Châtelot, in the Plain d'Ozon neighborhood, it seemed there were two of me. Elizabeth Assaidile was a ghost, a memory. Once, she had been the speculative future in the imagination of her birth parents who had wandered while pacing Yaoundé's hills in the days preceding her arrival, which of their likenesses she would carry most. That little girl's home was with them, thousands of miles south. Erased in all manner but paperwork, the ghost lingered. Being summoned by her name felt akin to hearing my genus and species. Description was accurate, in a sense, I could answer to it, but the syllables meant nothing to me. The person I felt most like was the other me, Vanessa Jukwa. Yet I understood that feeling was a fiction. Even when my school teachers played along, it was the ghost's name inked in my administrative files. The letters truest to me were borrowed, my identity conditional. How unsurprising that I would, at the age of almost four, rechristen myself. My parents had picked a bedtime story featuring a little boy named Minnie Bill. I had felt such kinship towards this character that beyond demanding that we reread the book dozens of nights in a row, I refused to answer to any other name than his for weeks on end. My tickled parents had indulged me another day, another set of letters. Rather than anchor me then, my name kindled a sort of dissociation. I was both girls and neither, of my parents, but not enough. Was I already searching for a way to rewrite myself in the singular at this rechristening? One afternoon in 92, when I was not quite four years old, I awoke from a nap to an unfamiliar voice down the hallway. A nameless man stood across from my mom in the living room of the little Châtelot apartment. My brain would register the next minutes as if consciously aware that there would be no next time, no next visit. The outline of the memory is imprecise, but I remember him being a head taller than my daddy and blacker than the country sky at midnight. How he bantered with my mom in a language that I recognized but couldn't code. How he called her by the secret nickname that only her family knew and how they laughed like friends who had loved and betrayed and forgiven because nothing else could be done about the summer of 89 other than to be better to each other for my sake. I watched them with wide eyes, head resting against my mom's hips, and wondered whether the stranger was coming or going, whether we were in the beginning or at the end. My mom caught me staring at the white cat he had brought, a stuffed toy so pretty that it just might pounce to life. She bent down to let me examine it. This one's not for playing, she said, then shelved it out of my reach. And what do we say? I thanked the stranger for the gift. Our eyes met. His existence had never struck me until that moment, but I remembered then that I had come out of another mother's belly. It occurred to me that while my parents had never expended on the fourth counterpart, the biological equivalent to my daddy, this could be him. I thought, or rather, I knew.
Without being able to quite articulate why, I felt a consuming urge to hear him, to hear it confirmed from him. The rush collided against my manners. In this household, we respect our elders. In this household, we do not interrupt adults in conversation. We do not ask rude questions. We resist our impulses. Disobeying those secret rules risks a timeout or spanking. But I needed to know. I had to know. I had to. No sooner had they paused than I blurted out. Are you my daddy? My mom guessed my name with slow, breathless horror. Vanessa. Immediately, I wished to rewind time. The distinction between fathers and daddies is hard to parse, but I was old enough to, I was old enough to understand that one word is distant and the other intimate. A man without a name to me couldn't be my daddy. It didn't seem right. I felt the weight of my mistake. Thankfully, my daddy was not home to witness this, but I was mortified at the possibility that he might hear about this and guess correctly that in asking my question, I hoped the stranger would say yes, that he was my daddy. To think that I betrayed my dearest parent for a stuffed white cat, it felt unforgivable, a shameful daughter. But the nameless stranger was not embarrassed. He simply chuckled. Then he was gone, trained to Paris, like to Yaoundae, leaving my question to hang in the little apartment, unanswered, and the ghost to room unclaimed. Thank you for that reading and, and thanks for um, speaking with me today about your beautiful book, um, which I just loved. Um, and oh. I, I read it, my, my younger child had COVID for the last like eight days. And so we've all been somewhat like confined to various parts of the house and um, your book kept me company during that time. Oh. <laughs> it was very uh, special to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me and thank you so much for reading and for the kind comments and I'm sorry about your your family getting COVID. Well, you know, right? only only she got it. So it actually oh. is sort of, um, yeah, it turned out as, as, as good as these things can be. Um, but yeah. um, so I, I guess I wanted to start. I loved recently um, you tweeted a little bit about like the journey to publication uh, for this book, which I think was I could I was just sort of like looking at the response and you can just feel how much people appreciate any transparency um, about the writing process because it is so opaque, especially around. Yeah, just like how um, nonfiction book proposals are come up with and sold. And so I, I wanted to ask you about that because one thing that I was thinking so much when I was reading is how beautifully you structured the book um, and how you were managing sort of different layers of, of theme and subjects and your own like autobiography throughout and weaving them together so beautifully. Um, and so I was surprised when I read in your Twitter thread that initially you had like well, first of all, the Twitter thread revealed that all of this happened in a very short period of time, all things considered. So I'm like really amazed by your Thank ability you. to manage multiple things at the same time, including like having a baby in a pandemic. Um, but so you reveal in the thread that you had started out with a different, you were, I, I believe the phrase you used was anti-hillbilly elegy, which <laughs> like, I'm sort of sad that we, the world definitely needs that also. But um, I, so I wondered if you could just talk about how, what that was like, the sort of process of thinking you were going to be writing one thing and then having to kind of flip it and how you thought about structure as you were putting this together. 
<laughs> well, I hope the book still has small elements of anti-hillbilly elegy in it. You know, <laughs> I've tried to credit institutions where I could for, you know, some of my lucky breaks for some of the help that my mom and I benefited from my whole childhood and even in college to the extent I got a state scholarship. I, I, I think these um, factors really impacted like outcomes for me. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, I, I started out with a narrative that was more, you know, A to Z, I was born in blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, kind of moving chronologically and I felt very hobbled. I, I felt like I couldn't say what I wanted to say about these different phases of my life because the way the narrative was structured, um, you know, a five to seven year old doesn't quite understand, may not understand why she feels the way she feels and like what cultural forces are affecting the way that she views her own uh, place in the world and her own, and you know, how she feels about her skin and her body as a home. And so um, I, it, it was kind of, that, that first draft was really painful. I, um, felt good about the writing, but I, I wasn't sure I was really getting to say what I wanted to say. Um, and I guess the idea was that, you know, I'm going to tell these anecdotes and then the payoff will come at the, towards the end of the book. Well, I will <laughs> reveal to you <laughs> why on earth I would mention this tiny thing that happened to me when I was three years old at the grocery store. And about 36,000 words in, when I thought we were getting pretty close to a book proposal. I got this email from my agent who <laughs> all credit to him God. is a master of the sandwich method. So <laughs> and that's what, this is great writing. I love it. Couple of questions. What are you trying to say? And I was like, oh, oh boy. Oh no. Like if my agent who, mind you, has edited these 36,000 words, many times has no clue what I'm trying to say, then I'm in trouble. So um, I had to rethink the structure. I then decided, well, decided then pitched my agent on a book of essays that would be themed around um, the idea of home, which is something that I think about a lot, you know, the really on the nose move. Like my first job out of law school was at the US Department of Housing and Urban Development. <laughs> like I, you know, I was uh, knocking on doors with Democratic Socialists of America for an for an anti eviction campaign for several months in D.C. Like, you know, I genuinely was very preoccupied with ideas of home and making sure people felt safe and like, what you know, what things do what things do make people feel safe and what things can threaten that safety and can home be broader than the places where we live? Can it be in our own names, our own bodies? And so, I proposed essays that I thought would kind of free me to comment on various things. So that's where the structure came in. And then I tried to, then during the editing process, I, which I love editing. I think it's so fun. Once you've already gotten past like the struggle of the white page and you actually have like words to play with, I, I don't know how, if I have succeeded in doing this, but you know, one of my favorite experiences with reading would be like, I don't know, in like middle school and high school, when your English teacher would like force you to really unpack 
a text like, and why is the hat red? And why do we think he placed the pebble there? And like, I don't know, maybe some of it was a stretch, but I also like the idea of like writers, like hiding these little nuggets so that if you're, you can get the straight story, but also if you're interested in making these little connections, like that's there too. And so I try to do that with this book. Um, and the theme of layers comes back a lot, but I have also tried to layer the structure of the book. Um, well, it it comes through so beautifully. And you know, one thing that I admired so much about it is that in every, you know, part of the sort of a, a main sort of feature of your own story is one of existing in many different places, um, different places, different language. Um, but you always cite whenever, wherever you are in your own story, I really love the detail that you bring to like talking about the neighborhood um, where you are cited, talking about the physical space where you are cited. Um, so, you know, when you're like buying your condo in Washington, DC, it's not just like, I bought this condo, but it's like, what is the Petworth neighborhood? What are the other residents of the condo? Like, what does it mean to be in this particular block? And I could really see, I was like trying to piece together because I had read your reported work before. Um, and I, I don't think I realized until I was like reading about reading the book that you are like a lawyer, like doing, <laughs> just doing whole jobs. Um, and, uh, and, uh, but all of that came through so beautifully and was, and like was married with the personal um, and the sort of like self-reflective and, and really like a beautiful writing about your family um, and all your family members. So I thought it was just, I, I love that because, you know, a lot of times I think people sort of think memoir is like pure introspection, but you're like, you were, you're, which I think is a misapprehension of what memoir is, but you, your book is just so like, I'm me, but I'm also in the world and how, how what does that um, look like? And well, so I wanted to also ask about your, how you brought your, your other, cause it seems in my mind, I was like, oh, she's has had this like long career as a writer and journalist, like an essayist before coming to the book, but the book kind of makes it seem, and then like you're, they're sort of happening concurrently too, um, in addition to your like full-time employment. Um, so one thing that is you don't talk much about in the book is how you did start thinking like, oh, you know what? I want to like pitch essays. I want to do some like reported writing. How did that part of your career start out? Um, it started out in 2016, um, a young person named Nathan Robinson, who had started his own little magazine, reached out to me out of the blue on Facebook. I don't know, maybe, I think he had seen like posts of mine that he thought were engaging or funny. And, you know, he was like, if you ever have an idea to write, you should you know, come to me with an idea and we'll work together. And I was like, thank you so much for thinking of me. I never have any ideas. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll get back to you if I do. <laughs> and um, eventually, um, I remember, oh my goodness, I think Eric Holder, who used to be the attorney general of the United States, uh, went into private practice after the Obama administration. And like, uh, there was some big scandal about Airbnb 
like discrimination on the site and with hosts and like Airbnb did a big mea culpa and then they <laughs> sent the report to Eric Holder to put his stamp of approval that like racism was now fixed at Airbnb and I was like that's that's outrageous I'll write about that <laughs> <laughs> and so that was my first essay for current affairs and you know Nathan had an open door policy so I I think maybe I wrote a few times more and then I started editing um for the magazine and so yeah so he really gave me um my start and it helped build my confidence you know I I look back at some of these pieces and I think I think they're too wordy and like I, I if I could go back and edit those I would be pretty <laughs> harsh but it was a good place to practice and um and and fail and learn um, and then once that started happening, some editors on social media would reach out to me randomly and be like, hey, that was interesting. You should pitch me sometime. So I, I was really kind of privileged in that way. And once I started writing the memoir in earnest, you know, really mostly 2019, there was a point at which my agent was like, look, you're a debut author. For us to sell this memoir, it would be helpful if you had more bylines in various places so let's work on pitching ideas to various magazines and so that was painful but it was also a great exercise because I got rejected so much <laughs> <laughs> so many just like ignored emails and gentle no's and you know it kind of you need that tough skin if you're gonna write a book because most likely your agent or yourself are going to pitch book editors and the same thing will happen people will say no and even now with a book coming out I pitch and I don't always get it but it's it's a good exercise <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's how that started um how do you think so one thing I was thinking um about you know you bring your expertise as a lawyer and someone who knows about like housing policies and um like you bring your professional like the expertise to your writing um and it made me think about how there's kind of like um sorry i've got a cat a cat appearance um, <laughs> there's like a, a, a trope among writers i think that which is a little bit ungenerous but sometimes people are like well you know every person i meet if i tell them i'm a writer they're like oh like i'd love to i'd, I'd love to like put some writing together like i'm I'd, I'd love to do and my i always i'm like you know first of all i think that's funny because whenever i meet a doctor i'm like i actually dabble in medicine myself <laughs> <laughs> um but also i just think that's such a I, like i wish that that there were more writers who were like I have a whole career that I have worked very hard to establish myself in. And I'm also now developing as a writer alongside that and sort of bring those things together. Um, do you feel like that's how you wanna move going forward? Or I, like, are you kind of like, I want to write a million more books? Like what, how do you, I guess that's, that's a hard question. I'm like, what is your five-year plan? Um, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. I like, I like, I want the two to be very separate. That said, um, I think being a lawyer has 
helped my non-legal, you know, non-work writing in the sense that like, I always assume that my reader is, is a skeptic. Like my reader doesn't have to believe me. I have to earn their trust. I have to back things up with, with evidence or explanations or rationale. Um, so I think I'm in some ways, I'm like a little bit of a defensive writer, but then I think that's helpful because I anticipate a lot, like, the, you know, the way in which my argument will be taken down, which is a very like lawyer brain move. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, my writing outside of work, I think has made my work writing better just because lawyers can write, <laughs> oh man, we can try real dry, just like, <laughs> knowing that like the other side probably has to read it and the judge probably has to read it or at least make their clerk read it read it so like you, you don't have a strong incentive to like make a narrative compelling but you can't assume that in other kind of writing you know you have to set up stakes you have to create scenes um because otherwise people will just put the thing down yeah um so I think I, I now bring that into my work but I'd like to keep the two separate it's interesting. I think of my work as a lawyer, like I know some very ambitious lawyers and, and they should be, and like, bless them. Like, <laughs> I hope you get to argue in the Supreme court. That is not me. I think of myself as a foot soldier. I have like no aspirations of management. Like I like the job I'm doing. Like, hopefully I can make the world, you know, I want my work to be like morally neutral or good right like those are my goals um <laughs> whereas with my writing I think it's where I actually channel like I want to write more books not memoirs I never want to write another memoir <laughs> I'm done I, I've said everything I needed to say um but I'd love to get into fiction and at yes. least try my hand at it there's so much bad fiction out there and who knows like I will probably <laughs> I might end up in the pile of bad fiction, but I'd like to try. I seriously doubt that. <laughs> There's, I mean, it's such a, all the, all the ways that you, I mean, and you know, you're describing people that you know, but like your way of presenting people who are so familiar to you as characters that it takes like such talent and sensitivity to be able to do that um, to people who don't know who you're talking about. Um, so I'm sure you would bring the same finesse to fictional people um hearing that from a novelist I wish I heard these words <laughs> well and I was thinking also how you so part of the story like you were kind of living and like you were having to live life and write this write the story of your life at the same time because the book and life like um converge at the at the end of the book so I'm presuming yeah. like assuming after you had sold it and are like now you know on the deadline to complete the book and you're like and I'm pregnant and it's a pandemic and <laughs> yeah. I am now traveling to Cameroon and like having this very sort of emotional like reunion. Um, yeah. How did you like, so, you know, I'm sure you're talking to all your family members like that you're also writing this book. Like, how did you approach sort of the the fact that you're you're not talking about the very distant past? Like you are in some respects, but you're also talking about like, life that is ongoing and how did you approach that with your family members some of whom are people you are, are haven't not spoken to for a long time yeah so I will say that life really only collided with the 
um, the last essay, mm -hmm. which starts out in July 2022. Um, so that was on a real tight deadline. Uh, <laughs> sorry, 2021, <laughs> July 2021. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, everything else happens in uh, in yeah in 2019 or earlier. So even with the second to last essay, I had a little bit of time to chew on things and reflect, which is my preferred more uh, mode of writing. I was really nervous about the right the, the last essay because I just thought like I just really don't write that fast like some of these other essays took me a couple of years to figure out um but something that did happen is that like I got better over time at writing with the, like the book kind of taught me how to write and helped solidify my voice so I was able to move faster but to get to your actual question <laughs> how did I I didn't I didn't my dad my dad my grandma my stepmom in France they know I'm writing the book they're so excited about it but we haven't sold French rights so they're not going to read it for a long time and my grandma might never get to read it um and so like I wasn't go <laughs> I just kind of let it you know they would say how's the book going so that's going very well thank you so much for asking um my family in Cameroon who I saw last summer and who are the subject of much of the last chapter on my mom's side they know about the book they're excited about it they're also French speakers so they're not going to get to read it unless it both comes out in French and is made available um in Cameroon in Africa where they live. And on my father's side, I actually didn't tell them that I was writing the book. Um, I think some are kind of aware from social media that they haven't asked. Um, so that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I should add, oh my gosh. And I think the person who is probably the most sensitive about the book is my mom who does read and speak English. She is a very private person. And she has said, right now her stance is that she's not gonna read the book. I think it just feels too funny. Um, I just hope I did her justice. You know, I, I, she had such a, she's a fiery personality and I wanted to capture that, but also while being, you know, I also wanted to be like, but I love this person. Like, oh, I love yeah. so much. <laughs> and so I, I, I wanted to be really careful. And I hope that if she does read it, that she'll be proud of the way I've portrayed her and, and not embarrassed. We'll see. Well, I mean, I think no one can ever know what a, how a mother will react to anything. But um, from my perspective, reading, um, I was... Yeah, I thought it was such a like beautiful portrayal and um, all the, because I think it would be, it's very easy to sort of like w writing about family to, I don't know, there, there are so many things that happen and so many like journeys that you sort of make together. Um, and, but throughout all, it all, like you make her like such a beautiful constant presence in your life and like a forceful presence and like a um yeah so I don't know I think it's such a like a <laughs> wonderful 
um, portrayal. But um, uh, it's funny that I'm going back to like a pre your previous answer about like writing as a lawyer from like a defensive posture. Mm -hmm. um, that is also, I think, like what writers who spend time on social media like also have. Yes. <laughs> there is definitely that. And um, one thing I found so like illuminating and like really cool about the book is that you talk about your own sort of like political journey. Because um, I think the reason that I like knew, connected, followed you on social media was because of your tweets about politics and like socialism. And that's how I sort of, that's like the sort of sphere that I um, became aware of your writing from. And then so I'm reading the book and I'm like, which is a Harvard Law School. I'm like, and there's like the Federalists. And like, like I was like, well, like is that the Federalist Society that I'm, oh yeah, that's oh, one. Um, and then, and then like, and then there's like a roommate and like all the, just, I, I love the way you talk about your, like, because you're, you're, I think it's true of every single person, like our, our political sort of journeys are also like our social journeys. So it's like how you're navigating your family and social life. Who are the people around you? What are the like mores that, and you say this, I, I won't, I will like butcher how you actually put this, but something about like, you just sort of pick up who's the 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 social mores of like who's around you um and you just hope that they're not too shitty <laughs> because that's yeah. like, that's like what you're gonna what you're gonna have and who you'll be and until you see you know other other things um how did it feel to write about that and to like kind of excavate your own sort of like how you how you moved through different ideas about like government and society <laughs> um I mean, I, it was difficult to write about in part because, you know, I'm a little like mortified by some of the views I used to hold, but I also felt like it was important for me to be honest about how just kind of heinous some of my beliefs were and like where they came from and the kinds of things that I didn't really believe, but still kind of stood behind because my, I felt like my religion required me to. Um, so yeah, I think I really tried to, uh, I don't know how to put it. I guess I didn't want to cut myself too much slack. I wanted to be honest about where I came from and, um, what kind of helped turn me around, you know, for me, it was this division from God and religion but also, and I hope this comes through in the book, but like the generosity of my classmates, there's this, um, there's this idea actually that like a lot of people go into law school more liberal than they come out. And that just wasn't my experience at all. And, you know, people I became friends with at law school tended to be on the older side and tended to be liberals. And I couldn't have grown politically if these people hadn't been so patient with me even when I said things that were like icky you know and they were like Vanessa <laughs> like let's think about this um and I yeah I thought that was I thought that was important I hope that people who read it who feel like they're still growing politically or are open to it will you know, we'll see that like not all of us who are pretty strident on social media like started out in the quote unquote right place. Cause I do stand behind the fact that I think we are, <laughs> I'm in the right place now, you know? Um, 
but it takes time and it's, it's okay to change your views and, you know, hopefully people will be open to that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I love that you like put that in there because like, I mean, so many parts of America are like incredibly like conservative in a variety of kind of different ways. However, that is defined and it really cuts across kind of class um, lines and like across regions. And I think that's, it's actually like a pretty um, foundational thing about a lot of just like American spaces. Uh, And yeah, I mean, when it was also just interesting to read about law school because it, I've never been in an environment that's quite like that. And the way it's described, it's like, you know, cause it's like the absolute, like one of the most competitive places mm-hmm. in the world, I imagine. And mm-hmm. so elite and like hard to get into. Um, and then w- the way you kind of describe the different people there, like it was interesting to just think about as a place where there are people who do have like political, different sort of political stances and they're all like thrown together and they're like, and you're all going to like be in charge in some way <laughs> or another, like, what is yeah. that going to look like and how, so it was just such a revealing and like interesting glimpse into that world. I think for those of us who like have not, you know, gone to law school and don't know what that's like. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just telling you nice things that I like about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the sandwich method minus all the bad parts. I love yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah, I, there's no, there's no part. I'm also, I'm just, I, I know we have to, they're probably going to like give us the boot soon, but um, I, I like thinking, it's interesting to hear you talk about it as essays. Cause now when I think about it, I'm like, oh yeah, they do like every, everything can stand alone, but it's so like each one like calls back so beautifully to like the preceding ones that it is, I, that's not how I, my brain was sort of like receiving yeah. it as I read through. Um and to be clear, it is a memoir. My editor would be very young. <laughs> I when the delete first this part of the podcast. <laughs> no, when I like when the first book failed and I repitched, I was thinking about it as a book of essays. But then once I started working with my editor, we went for memoir, and I did work really hard to. I had to move some around chronologically, and just kind of build that connective tissue. Um, but it's true that in the end, some of these chapters, yeah, really can stand alone. <laughs> it's just gonna however be like, you want to call them. It's going to be like bleeped over and they're going to be like <laughs> chapters every time it says essay. Um, we're going to redact this. <laughs> um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I like, I just love the book so much. I, I mean, obviously you have like a very sort of singular experience and like lots of different places that you've lived, but um, I grew up like in the foreign service family. So we moved around a lot and, you know, of course, like obviously like the individual experiences are incredibly different, but I think there's so many people who, for whatever reason, have an experience of living in different places and like changing their context. And then only after like, well, you're well into adulthood. Often I think when you are sort of thinking about like, am I, how am I going to make my own family? What is my like adult life going to look like? Then you're like, oh wait, what, what? happened back there (laughs) what was that um and I so I think so many this will speak to so many people um both in the singularity and specificity of it but then also like this sort of universal um things about thinking about home and family that everybody has um so I just like congratulate you so much on like telling your story so beautifully and I can't wait to read any other books that you write. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I, I do 
do hope the book will will resonate with people from very different backgrounds and experiences. That is the best that could happen. Uh, but thank you for reading it so generously. It means a lot. Um, it was truly, truly my pleasure. Um... Hi, Tyler. Or are we supposed to not acknowledge you? <laughs> oh, you can. That's totally cool. Uh, I felt like a good place where everyone was wrapping up, so I figured I'd pop back in uh, and just thank you both so much for such a lovely conversation, Lydia and Vanessa. Absolutely wonderful to get to sit and listen in on. Uh, I was just going to say, if you want to find Vanessa's book, Homebound, uh, it'll be at our uh, 1818 Vermont Avenue location in Los Angeles at Skylight Books. And I just want to also offer a thank you to all the listeners for, for spending the time with us. Much appreciated. Thank you, Skylight Books. Thank you, Lydia. Thank you, Vanessa. Congratulations. Oh, and it's almost your birthday, I saw <laughs> on Twitter, I think. <laughs> this, the book comes out on my birthday. So listeners, ah! if you want to, that is the ultimate birthday gift. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. And everyone have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.